0: I'm Sheena and I'm Lori. and this is Cemetery Road. Wee!
1: Yay! Oh, Hannah didn't do woo! Like I, went, I always I love I live for Hannah's woohoo! <laughs> woo-hoo. <laughs> when we start every episode I was like if ever we get um merch it'll just be <laughs> woo. <woo-hoo. laughs> I loved it because
2: that's how the Sims had sex in the Sims.
1: <laughs> oh, or it would be maybe a T-shirt of Gasolina because you know that's, <laughs> that's our unofficial theme song around here. It is. It is. Sorry, um, Revenge Body.
2: It's also Gasolina. If he could do a remix of that for me, that'd be great. <laughs> I'll, I'll get him on that. <laughs> Um, we don't have any news updates. Um, Mm-mm. we do have a PSA brought to you by the Cemetery Row crew. Um get your fucking shot. <laughs> That's it, yes. exactly, took the words out of my mouth. Now so get what vaxxed. you're doing.
1: Go get vexed. It's free. Hopefully, go get it. Hopefully, we have a bunch of good, responsible adult listeners here. Yes, who have done so. And if they haven't, maybe they have talked to their doctor about why they need to hold off for whatever reason. I don't know what those reasons are, but that's between you and your doctor, but, um, please go get that. Um, this is getting scary again. Right. And if you know
2: people who, Oh, I'm sorry, Lori, if you know people who want to get it, but either have transportation problems or maybe have language barriers, BT dubs, all healthcare settings are required to offer interpretation services. So if somebody's Spanish speaking or Vietnamese Mm -hmm. speaking or something like that, under the law, they have the right to an interpreter. So don't let that be a barrier. Also, if they're having mobility problems, help out where you can. Um, If you can drive them and you feel safe driving them, please do. I mean, wear um, your mask too. Wear your mask. You know, you know, kids under 12 still cannot get this. I have right. a 10-year-old niece who I am terrified for because she's going to school in Mississippi right now.
0: Ugh. And that is where I'm going to jump in. Thank you. I have a five-year-old son who just started kindergarten and an almost two-year-old daughter. If I lose one of my babies to COVID, it's going to be a...
1: Uh, <clears throat> Oh, hell's Don't even talk about it. I can't not even, even go put that. I, can't, oh, I don't even want to put that into the universe. Yes. Yes. I can't, I, I can't,
0: I, I am so stressed. Mississippi is not putting out a mask mandate and Shelby County schools, which is, um, the city of Memphis, uh, announced today that kids are going to be masking up. Um, and you know, I'm doing the best I can, but sawyer doesn't want he's five he's not gonna keep a mask on all day and if the other kids aren't doing it it drives me bonkers and these people that think they're smarter than scientists
2: just really piss me off so amen yes absolutely off
0: my soapbox get your shot
2: absolutely stay on that soapbox because like i said you know there are no more child at a child ICU beds available in the state of Mississippi. Right. Right. There are no more. There are no more in Arkansas and they have seven children on ventilators in Arkansas. Babies on ventilators. This is not great. This is not cool. Not funny. Everyone who went to Lala, I'm side eyeing you. Yeah. There were some people that went and were safe, but all of you that were like in that big clutch of bodies You're all from the suburbs and I hate you. (laughs) And if you make me miss Riot Fest because of your shenanigans, I'm going to, I'm. She's going to shit a brick.
1: I'm going to be real pissed.
2: (laughs) I'm going to be real pissed.
1: (laughs) All right. So yeah, that's our PSA. So please take this seriously. Yeah. Yeah. There you can go. We so get the
2: the more you know music. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Derek. Yes. Can you uh?
1: Can you just float that in right here? Cue
0: that up. So <laughs> I'll introduce our topic this week, since this was Yay. kind of uh my my idea. So this week we're keeping it a little different. You know, last week we had uh, or last episode we had paranormal grab bag. This time we're doing survivors, and this is I am taking one hundred percent responsibility for picking this topic because. This story that I have is something that I've been dying to share even before we had a podcast. So, yeah, not everybody on this episode are dead. And in fact, uh, I just barring from what I've uh, we've talked about off the mic, I think maybe we have one that may may no longer be with us. But, you know, these are great and interesting stories. And so we just want to share these before we get back to our talk about dead people. Right. Yeah.
2: (laughs) right and okay this unlodged a memory this is going to be old miss talk so if you want to fast forward i don't know 30 seconds or till your death i don't care um (laughs) remember sheena on the back to school special issue
1: we misspelled survivor
0: (laughs) yes i remember
1: i do not but i don't (laughs) doubt. I don't remember that it was the front cover i I don't i don't (laughs) doubt it because that was the summer that i literally messed everything up and i got called out um i'm not gonna say what a professor called me because it still hurts my feelings i understand um but yeah so but
2: i remember um a certain he doesn't listen to this um bleep that bleep that Derek. um his
0: photo journalist, a <laughs> photo
2: editor, we won't talk about. Um, he we kept singing survive roar because that's how we spelled it. <laughs>
1: Did we really? I don't remember, y'all. It's
2: uh,
1: <laughs> that was 15 years ago, it was and 15 ADHD, years ago, since, yeah. So, well, and,
0: and a whole ass hurricane, so. and a whole oh, ass God. hurricane.
1: Oh, that was a fun <sighs> year.
0: Okay, no way. Okay. <laughs> Sheena is going to kick us off this week. Sheena, yes. you ready to to tell us about your survivor? You yes. Thing.
1: Um, the woman I am talking about this week survived a near fatal shooting with um, very dangerous bouts of infections. Oh. She survived World War II during which she was chased by the Nazis across Europe. She was a master of disguise, and the, as the Nazis called her, she was the enemy's most dangerous spy. Oh. I'm sharing the story of this woman who accomplished so much all while being disabled, Miss Virginia Hall. Oh. Um, so I just read a book about her and I'll get to that book later. But um, the whole time I was reading it, I was like, this is my survival survival story. <laughs> like, it, it oh, it's so good. All right, you know how this goes. <laughs> Picture it. Baltimore, Maryland. Oh. April 6, 1906, Miss Virginia Hall is born. She is born into a very wealthy family. And at this time in history, all she was expected to do was get an education and marry well, right? No one really expected anything groundbreaking from women at all during that time. And she, like pretty well every other woman in those days, was kind of generally dismissed and overlooked. Um, But Virginia never wanted this quiet life of marriage and, you know, I don't know, voluntary, just, you know, chilling. Right. She was not about that life. From a young age, she bucked the status quo. Uh, She liked to play male roles in school plays because she liked to be the hero of the story and she liked to perform the swerve fight scenes. Yes, she did. She once wore a bracelet of live snakes to school. (laughs) nightmare fuel nightmare okay virginia more for her you know good for her more power to her but no uh (laughs) and um you know because this is very uh shocking for back in those days she wore pants and she (gasps) liked to hunt no your pearls scandal scandal Uh, As a young woman, she attended Radcliffe and Bernard Colleges, as well as George Washington University. She studied abroad in Europe, and she especially uh, fell in love with France. Her dream job was to become a diplomat, but as you can imagine, there were not a lot of females who were, you know, hired to be diplomats. But what she had going for her was she was very good at languages. She spoke French, Spanish, Italian, Russian, and German. Mm. She did find clerical work in the U.S. embassies in Europe in the early 1930s, but her life changed forever while bird hunting in Turkey in 1933. As you do. Yeah. She tripped and accidentally shot herself in her left foot. Holy shit. She had to, uh, her leg had to be amputated below the knee. Oh my God. She felt several several nearly fatal bouts of infections i think that was why she had to have it amputated to begin with right because the the shot got infected but then it she still dealt with many many bad infections back
2: then was not exactly
1: yeah i think they put maggots on it and hoped for the best (laughs) i think i remember in the book they mentioned that her doctor was like didn't expect her to survive but here she is like damn holy cow um so I mean she survived so much it's to say she is a survival story is like not doing her justice almost. <laughs> so yeah so she survives that shooting um and once she fully recovers she learns how to walk with um a wooden leg that she names Cuthbert. Yes. Oh <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so she's permanently permanently disabled from here on out but that does not slow her down one bit. Right. Uh, she continued yes she continued to apply for jobs in the government but was turned down because of an obscure rule against hiring people with disabilities <laughs> um she actually had people even write to president franklin d roosevelt on her behalf and say hey this woman's amazing let's hire her um but he refused to make any kind of you know which is awfully ironic which is ironic because he would he too was disabled yes so she returns to Europe and at 1940, of course, World War II is breaking out. So Virginia goes to work as an ambulance driver for the French army. And while she's there, she meets a British intelligence officer who told her he, uh, she could find work in England as a member of the newly created Special Operations Executive or SOE. As she, uh, so she traveled back to England and was hired there. On um, September, where did I get September? (laughs) (laughs) April, 1941. Uh, She received just a little bit of training, but then she was sent right back into France, which is occupied by the Nazis. This sounds like some James Bond shit. Yeah. Yeah, right. The SOE sent 41 female agents to France total, and only 26 of them survived. Yikes. And again, she's doing all of this with one leg essentially.
2: Did she have like a prosthetic of some She sort? had Cuthbert.
1: Oh yeah, you
2: mentioned that.
1: Jesus. Yeah, that's it. Ignore Captain ADD over here. And it's okay. <laughs> uh, she was a master of disguise and she changed her look often. Um, I read a quote by one woman. I think she's the director of the CIA Museum. Uh, she said that Virginia could be four different women in the space of an afternoon with four different code names, which I thought was so cool. Oh, that's Ooh. awesome. Virginia made sure she knew all of the local customs, the local laws, and the rules to avoid detection. I remember this one story from the book where this one spy was discovered because he said something to someone about, he thought he'd go buy some alcohol or something, but it wasn't on sale that day. So they knew he wasn't local and they captured Ah, him, which is like little things like that you wouldn't even think of, right? Right. And then, of course, the Nazis were misogynistic. They didn't think women were really capable of being spies. So that kind of helped, too. But it only helped for so long. But we'll get to that. Um, so she, while she was in France, she posed as a reporter for the New York Post. And she filed these quote-unquote stories full mm-hmm. of keywords and coded messages <gasps> for the SOE. I love it. Yeah. She worked out of a convent where she helped uh, organize French resistance fighters and she gave them information, supplies, and a safe place to stay. She also worked with local sex workers and brothel owners who provided intelligence that they picked up from the German soldiers. Very smart. (laughs) Uh, Virginia did eventually uh, capture the, uh, Gestapo's attention I always forget how to say that word I, I, don't, Gestapo. I don't I don't like saying Nazi words I know it's yeah <laughs> it's, it's a natural, natural Nazis, reaction yeah so yeah she uh caught the Gestapo's attention but they didn't know her exact identity and they only referred to her as the limping lady the Gestapo's Klaus Barbie, who was called the Butcher of Lion for the thousands of French citizens, tortured and killed at his command, oh, uh, posted wanted posters oh. of Virginia. The posters read, the enemy's most dangerous spy, we must find and destroy her. No. And he is quoted as saying, I would give anything to get my hands on that limping Canadian bitch. Ooh. What Ooh. an ass hat. Yeah. She, she was. was not Canadian, by the way. No. But you yeah, know, whatever. Why do you call her Canadian? A bag of dicks, dude. I think I've read that her, while she was very good at languages and, and could speak multiple languages, that her like American accent would slip through sometimes. And, and I wonder, and I wonder if maybe if she when she said something, it sounded a little more. I don't know. And since she was or so Nazis good at, are just fucking stupid. Thank you. That too. Um, on the other hand though virginia was very smart very resourceful very very careful she only broke the rules when they needed to be broken
2: and a girl
1: sometimes the soe would send agents to work with her but if they weren't up to her strict security standards she wouldn't work with them um and she proved to be you know her suspicions about these people would be correct because later they would be captured and killed and she's like you know told you Mm -hmm. you weren't being careful basically so uh the most harrowing story i think of her life besides maybe the shooting is um a capture or she when she was um when she escaped capture in the winter of 1942 the nazis literally were right on her trail she had maybe a 24-hour head start so she escapes to spain but this escape was on foot, it was a dangerous three-day, fifty-mile hike through the Pyrenees Mountains in heavy snowfall. Literally on foot for her. Yeah, I mean it's 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 bad. Um, the journey was extremely difficult for anybody, you know, in snowfall in the mountains, right. three days, fifty miles. Um, but it was even worse for her because of Cuthbert. Um, her leg developed blisters and bled profusely. Yeah. <sighs> Um, but she managed to make it through, um, just before her escape, she had messaged the SOE saying she hoped Cuthbert wouldn't give her any trouble. And I guess the person at the SOE didn't understand the reference and said, if Cuthbert is troublesome, eliminate him, (laughs) which I'm like, first of all, I love how Cavalier y'all are like, yeah, they're just like fucking kill him. But it's like, that's her wooden leg. She can't, um, and I've read where more recent researchers who are trying to trace our story have actually done this same path that she took to get to freedom oh, and wow. they're all able-bodied and they said it was exhausting and almost fatal because they almost slipped and fell a bunch of times. You know, and here she is in heavy snowfall Damn. with one good leg and she made it through. Like she is amazing. Okay. okay. So, Virginia makes it back to England eventually. And in July 1943, they made her an honorary member of the Order of the British Empire. Very nice. Yay. Yeah. So, she wanted to go back to France, but uh, the SOE considered it too dangerous for her because she was already on their radar. And there's even more Nazis in the country. So, they're like, no. But by this point, the United States had entered the war and they needed Virginia. So um, the United States had started the office of strategic services or OSS, Mm -hmm. which had no presence in France yet. And she signs up with them and is like, let's go. So (laughs) since she was already known by the Nazis, she had to figure out a new disguise. She had a makeup artist teach her how to apply makeup to make her look like an old woman with like all these wrinkles on her face. And, and this, this Blows my mind. She had her teeth ground down. <gasps> oh so she would look like a peasant. Oh God. No, like, no ma'am. When you yes. ma'am. dedicated to fighting fascism. Yeah, it, that is mm-hmm. committing to the best. So I love her so much. And then she wore a gray wig, of course. Um, she had the clothes that you know sort of helped um make her look like a little old lady she would wear, like really thick skirts and stuff. So it made her look kind of pudgy. and um of course they wouldn't be able to see the prosthetic yeah they wouldn't be able to see the prosthetic and she sort of did this little old lady shuffle which hit oh yeah so she goes back to france in 1944 she's looking like a little old lady i love it and she continues her work she secures shelter and transportation for the allied forces she also had learned morse code so she starts working as a radio operator Got a girl. Uh, she called in some airdrops for the resistance fighters who sabotaged trains and they blew up bridges. Um, there was one really scary scene from the book where um, again, she's dressed as a little peasant lady who's like a little French milkmaid who you know has some milk and cheese and she sells it to some Nazis. Mm. And later, for some reason, they become suspicious of her. So, like, they go in there um going through her house, and of course, she's scared because she's like, What if they find any of the radio trains you know blah blah My blah. Shit. yeah but they don't and then they were like oh wait you're the woman who sold us cheese you're cool like yeah <laughs> which i loved <laughs> um so once the civil or uh, civil war y'all sweet Ooh. jesus <laughs> what is wrong with sheena today <laughs> once the war was over she joined the newly formed cia which was formed out of the oss yeah And she hated this because it was desk work. She craved adventure and she wanted to be out in the field. Um, But she did marry a fellow OSS officer, Paul Gallo. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, And they were married and they were very happy. That's very nice. Very nice. She was basically, though, forced into retirement when she hit the age of 60. So she and Paul retired (laughs) to Maryland. Yeah. I mean, they taught like. They told like they pretty well were like you're sixty by like yeah. Like,
2: I hope I'm done doing shit by
1: sixty. That is so young.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: right. and I'm like she still had a lot of kick left in her, but okay. <laughs> um, anyway, so Virginia and Paul, as I said, they retired to Maryland. She died on July 8th, 1982 at the age of 76. And then Paul died a couple of years later in 1987. They are buried at Druid Ridge Cemetery in Pikesville, Maryland, which is basically right outside Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one big monument with like their last name on it. And then they each have these two smaller individual monuments. I think she needs this huge plaque or something with all amazing things on it, but that was not her style um she never spoke about the war even to her own family biographers wow. and those closest to her suspect she didn't want to capitalize on the deaths of her fellow agents since she was close to so many who who did get captured and who right. died uh, she also denied public recognition um but she did receive several awards some of them posthumously Uh, President Harry Truman wanted to honor her with a public ceremony at the White House, but she refused because she said she still wanted to be undercover, which I mean, you know, spy till the end, right? Good for her. (laughs) So instead, she asked that OSS founder William Donovan give her the award in a private ceremony in his office, and only her mother attended that ceremony. Oh, that's very sweet. Uh, she was also awarded the Croix de Guerre by France, which is one of their military honors. Aww. Uh, in 2006, on what would have been her 100th birthday, she was honored by French and British ambassadors in Washington, D.C., and in 2016, the CIA field agent training facility was named the Virginia, Virginia Hall Expeditionary Center. And there's a painting of her now that hangs in the CIA's fine arts collection. I had no idea the CIA had a fine arts collection. Yeah, that's
0: impressive.
1: I know. (laughs) And then uh, she was inducted into the Maryland Women's Hall of Fame in 2019. The book that I read is A Woman of No Importance by Sonia Purnell. Um, because a lot of people, is, is as the author said, like from the be- beginning of her life, she was considered a woman of no importance. Right. Like she wasn't a big deal. Nothing much was expected out of her, you know, and then it, doing her spy work, she tried to sort of be a woman of no importance. Yeah. Um, but there are several other books, but that's the one I read. And I, I, I highly recommend it because it really goes into the nitty gritty details of her ins and outs and just how smart and careful she was. And it, it was wonderful. And then there's supposed to be a movie based on that book with Daisy Ridley starring as Virginia.
2: Oh. And I can't
1: find much on it. I have a feeling COVID probably has yeah. shelved that. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm going to end all this with a quote from her niece, Lorna Catling, who said, uh, Virginia always avoided publicity. She would say it was just six years of my life. Oh, no. Um, and that is the amazing Miss Virginia Hall. That
2: is amazing. And that was the last cute, sweet thing the CIA ever did. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, sounds like she could give, uh, Kate Warren a run for her money. Yeah. Yeah. She reminded me of her. Yeah. 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 When you're talking about all the different disguises and yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not really big on a lot of, um, war stories right I, I, I I'm very picky about them mm-hmm. and I just decided to read about her because I'm like oh she sounds like a cool lady and then I loved that book so if you are interested in a really awesome lady go read that book mm-hmm.
2: yeah and it's kind of like Jane Adams too in that they didn't they could have gotten like much more fanfare but they were just happy with you know they did what they did and then they retired to their
1: obscurity and they were you happy know- with that it's funny because I almost started off her story by saying, you know, there's something to be said for keeping your mouth shut (laughs) (laughs) because she learned the art of that. And, um, it was actually speculated by some, um, historians that no one really knew her story or no one really told it because she didn't, but also because the ones who did know were killed for talking too much. Right. So maybe her being quiet was a, a preservation thing, but also I do think it was a, you just keep your mouth shut. Keep your right. mouth shut. I your mean, head down, you, you do don't know
2: who's watching what and waiting, you know, oh, that's so and so who I remember seeing in the war. They were a spy. Let's go fuck their shit up.
1: Yeah. And there were people who double crossed her and stuff like that, of course. Um, this is the very high level version of her story. Yeah. Right. There's so much more to it, obviously.
2: But that yeah, means- um,
1: I just think she was really a fascinating lady. So that's awesome. Yeah. I love that Great story. Yeah yay hey. Hannah?
2: no it's Lori right yes I thought it
1: was Hannah oh is it Lori yeah no, I don't
2: know
0: yes. surprise me I have my my dates are next so I'm not gonna give you any you know intro like I normally do I'm just gonna get right to it so For the flight crew of FedEx Flight 705 from Memphis to San Jose, California, the afternoon of April 7th, 1994, looked like a great day for a flight across the country. Skies were clear. It was beautiful. They were just jiving, ready to get behind the (laughs) (laughs) air, ready to get up in the air. Um, They didn't know it at the time, but the flight would end in a fight almost to, to the death and an emergency landing back at the Memphis International Airport. So the first person on board was flight engineer, Andy Peterson. And he was surprised to see Auburn Calloway who was also a flight engineer for FedEx already on board the plane and conducting the pre-flight check, which was unheard of um, as he was not the assigned engineer for that flight. You will understand why he was doing that momentarily. A little bit about Calloway. He was a gifted chess player and martial arts expert. He was very smart and graduated from Stanford University in 1974. Um, He went on to serve in the Navy as a pilot before flying commercially. Um, And he had been with FedEx for five years. But during that time with FedEx, he only served as a flight engineer and not a pilot. He had two children and had gone through a very messy divorce in 1990. So little background on
2: that guy. Foreshadowing almost. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I I wonder, yes. (laughs) So uh, the funny thing is Callaway had actually been scheduled to serve as the flight engineer on flight 705, but he and the crewmates assigned to the flight had gone one minute over their allowed flight time the previous day. So it was rebooked with uh, Peterson and his crew. The original flight had Callaway as the engineer, a female co-pilot and a male pilot. So as I get into this story, you'll see what really could have happened had this they not gone over their time. Um, Callaway's only luggage on the flight was a guitar case. It was not checked before he boarded the flight. You know, this was 94, so it was years before 9-11 and no one could have predicted what his plans were or what was in his case. Spoiler alert, it was not a guitar. Oh dear. Yes, so shortly after Peterson boarded and was doing all of his uh, pre-flight checks, he was joined by the two pilots, the captain David Sanders and first officer Jim Tucker both men were ex-navy pilots and tucker was a dc-10 flight instructor so this flight this airplane is a dc-10 which harkens back to my uh memorial episode which was a dc-10 plane
2: next time uh, you fly check check the check the yes yeah, so make sure it's not a <laughs> dc-10
0: uh, or or in this case you probably want it to be a dc-10 well there you go um So Sanders had been a pilot with FedEx for 20 years. He was 49 years old and Tucker had been with the company for 10 years. Um, He was a little younger. He was 42. Um, Tucker had also served as a combat instructor and fighter pilot in the Navy. Um, So yes, both, both the pilots had military training while he was doing these pre-flight checks peterson noticed that the breaker switch of the cockpit voice recorder um, was turned off and that uh, records in-flight communication Um, it's very important if there is a a plane crash uh, because it records what's going on inside the plane Um, if commercial airplanes are not allowed to take off if that's not working so he turned it back on kind of made a mental note of it and went got up and went to the back of the plane to do the rest of his check Uh, when he came back and sat down at his station he noticed that it was turned off again so he turned it back on and made a note okay i'm going to keep an eye on this if it if it pops out again the flight's canceled because that's, um, in the episode of this TV show called Mayday air disasters, I watched, uh, he says that's a no-fly situation. Um, and
2: FedEx does
0: not play with their safety. Right. Right. And he he was, he was very much, you know, and this was back in 94 and they were, this was important. Um, so the co-pilot Jim Tucker was offered the chance to fly the first half of the trip and he took it. Again, uh, everything I've read talked about how gorgeous the day was. So it was the perfect day to fly. And so the trip would be about 10 hours round trip. He would fly the plane out to San Jose and then Sanders would fly it back. he was flying manually so it wasn't on autopilot he had his hands on the controls and he was actually having just like a friendly conversation with um sanders and the rest of the crew um this was the first time the three of them had ever flown together and they were talking about where they lived uh when um Callaway came up from the back of the plane and Peterson, who was sitting behind the pilots kind of off to the side, saw him out of the corner of his eye and just thought, Hey, this dude is going to come. T- he's going to come shoot the breeze with us, sit down and talk before he knew it. He bashed him in the head with a sledgehammer. He bashed him in the head with a claw hammer multiple times.
1: Wow.
0: He moved on from Peterson and hit Tucker in the left side of his head with a sledgehammer and almost knocked him unconscious. He was kind of, um, Tucker recalled, he wasn't out, but he wasn't there. Like the lights yeah. were on, but nobody was home. Uh, when Callaway saw that he was out, he moved on to Sanders who got up and started fighting back. The men began to mobilize. So Callaway raced to the back of the plane where his um, guitar case was, and he pulled a spear gun out. And he came back into the cockpit, pointing them with the gun and saying, you know, I've got a real gun. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. And Peterson saw the spear part of the gun coming into the cockpit. So he grabbed it with his hands and just began wrestling with Callaway, hoping to, to get the gun away from him. Wow. So Sanders joined in and these two men were like fighting to the death to get this man under control. And as I said, Auburn Calloway was a martial arts expert. He had flown in the Navy. He was very big and very fit. If he had been on the flight like he had originally planned, he probably would have had an easier time because taking over um, one other man and a small woman would have been a lot easier for him. So while all this fighting is going on, Tucker knew that, okay, the best weapon I have is the airplane. I've got to do what I can to help knock them off their feet and help them beat Callaway. So he executes a 15 degree climb and he rolls the plane to the left. He rolled it 140 degrees. So it was almost completely upside down on its back.
1: Jesus is terrifying. And this is a
0: giant plane. I think it was 18 tons with all of the equipment on it. Oh Uh, God! So, and just for reference, commercial airplanes like the one he was flying are never meant to roll more than 60 degrees to the left or the right. So he then put the plane in a 15 degree dive. And at this point they were going at more than, they were flying at more than 500 miles per hour. Hmm. DC 10s. We're not are not meant to be flown faster than 430 miles an hour oh jesus so no dc 10 has ever flown that fast and come out unscathed and tucker managed to do all of this as the right side of his body was becoming paralyzed from the blow to his head no um wow so so the fight is continuing in the back uh sanders and peterson were both losing a lot of blood and were very weak and they managed to subdue him momentarily and, and kind of gain the upper hand. So at this point Tucker is finally able to contact air traffic control back at Memphis and this is just mere minutes after the fight began. So this has not taken any time at all. Um, he let them know you know we we've had an attempted hijacking. I need direction back to Memphis and you need to have armed people on site because this is this isn't a joke. Mm-hmm. So as, while he's talking to Memphis, he hears the fight in the back picks up. So he rolls the plane again to try to help uh, his his two crewmates gain the upper hand. Um, at one point, they start Sanders start, starts yelling for him, hey, you got to come back here, put it in autopilot, put it in autopilot, you know, we need you. And he managed to get the plane to a speed that would allow him to put it in autopilot. And he went back to help uh, Peterson and Tucker. Um So Tucker came back there and starts helping Peterson um, and Sanders goes back up to the front to take over the plane. And uh, the reasoning behind this is that in any type of emergency situation, it's kind of their protocol that the captain of the plane needs to be the one to land it you know, back at the base. So Sanders went back up to, and he was honestly probably the least injured out of all of them. So he goes up to try to get the plane back to Memphis and landed. And Tucker and Peterson are still fighting Callaway. It's like the fight that never ends. And uh, at one point, Callaway is trying to gouge out Tucker's eyes. Like he is not stopping. So after a few more minutes of this, Sanders realizes we we could lose this I need to go kill him you know at first they were just trying to subdue him so he gets up and is on his way to the back and Peterson and Tucker finally got him under control and said we got it you don't need to come back here so Auburn Callaway owes his life to uh David Sanders for <laughs> not going back there and bashing his fucking brains in like I would have wanted to.
2: Right. Do. But like, this is quite enough. Yes.
0: So somehow, even though this plane was more than 18 tons over the recommended landing weight with more than 85,000 pounds of fuel in the tanks, Sanders was able to land it safely back at Memphis International Airport. God damn. Yes. Um, and, and again, I, I have this episode in the notes. I rented it. I couldn't find it anywhere for free. I'm sure there it's somewhere, but I rented it off Amazon prime. I watched it four times. It was very fascinating. Um, it was a Canadian show and it, in the America it was released it as uh, mayday air disasters it was really interesting. There's also a YouTube video that recreates the flight that was released in 2018. So that's very interesting as well. Um, so they, they get on the ground, the first person that made it onto the plane was a first responder named David Teague, who was able to handcuff Callaway. Um, so now to like, how the The crew members were. They were in really bad shape. Peterson barely had a pulse. He had suffered massive blood loss, skull fractures, and was in critical condition. Mm -hmm. And Tucker had fractured had a fractured skull with bone chips driven into his brain. Oh God. And he had a blood clot on his Mm -hmm. brain. Yeah. So both men were taken to uh, the regional medical center, which is now regional one, that's Mm -hmm. Memphis level one trauma center. Um, Sanders, as I said earlier was, he was still pretty badly beaten, but he was the least beaten of the three men. He had to have his right ear sewn back into place and he had um, severe gashes all over his head tucker had to undergo three surgeries um the blow to his head caused him motor control problems on the right side of his body and he went through two and a half years of cognitive and physical therapy Mm -hmm. and had to learn how to walk talk and even chew gum again
2: oh my god
0: so but they all lived they 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 beat the odds and they came out of it and so now i'm going to go back and give you more on Auburn Calloway and why he did this and what his plans were. Um, so he had greatly exaggerated his flight experience on his application when he applied at FedEx, and they had figured out that there, there was some fudging on his information. And he was actually scheduled to go in for a disciplinary hearing the very next day. Um, he... Feared that he was going to get fired, and that would mean the end of his career. He wouldn't be able to support his ex-wife and his children. He wanted them to go uh, to Stanford like him, uh, and so he felt like, okay, this is the end. He updated his will and left it on his bed. So I don't understand why he would have done this with kind of the the plan he had had in mind. He wrote a letter to his ex-wife that kind of explained his reasoning behind it. Uh, And he packed the guitar case with hammers and the spear gun and a knife that somehow didn't get used in the struggle. Um, His reasoning for using these items were that, you know, if he was successful and crashed the plane, those items would either be incinerated in the inferno or, you know, they they wouldn't think twice about, you know, a spear gun or hammers, you know, because they were, taken stuff out to the coast it could have just been right you know it, it wouldn't have seemed odd to investigators mm-hmm. i mean a gun would have been obvious, right. and the hammers would also uh create injuries similar to what you would expect in a plane crash
2: jesus
0: so it is believed that his initial plan was to disable the cockpit voice recorder and take over the plane early in the flight however since peterson caught it both times and turned it back on callaway just basically had to wait 30 minutes because once the flight has been in the air for 30 minutes that um cbr turns off and so it would lose any record after that point Hmm. um okay and and so no one would know so his end game What the FBI figured he was up to was to crash the, take control of the plane, kill the three crewmen and crash the plane into the FedEx hub, which would not only kill him and the three men on the plane, but a number of the workers on the ground. And it would cause major financial hardship for the company. Um, He felt like FedEx was cheating him and was doing him dirty. So he was going to do whatever he could to cause them as much problems
2: as he could. How's that going to get his kids into Stanford?
0: Thank you. If the crash was ruled an accident, the company would pay his family $2.5 million in life insurance.
1: Oh yeah. But that's a hateful way to go about doing that. Right.
2: And then with the will sitting there, I mean, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I I
0: don't know what his thought process was. I mean, obviously it wasn't much of a thought process, right? uh, but that was his plan to make it look like something happened. The plane crashed after takeoff and crashed into the hub. Um, thankfully that did not happen um auburn calloway pled temporary insanity but it Mm -hmm. took the jury only three and a half hours to find him guilty um he was found guilty of attempted air piracy and initially like interfering with the crew but they later got rid like he appealed the uh, the second charge and they got rid of it, but he was still sentenced to life in federal prison, uh, and has no possibility of parole. So he had dual life sentences. They dropped the one, but he's still not going anywhere.
2: Talk about fragility at its Mm -hmm. just most, you know, people have, I got fired twice within Mm -hmm. a year. And let me tell you, it sucked, but I didn't like crash a fucking plane over it.
0: Yeah. uh, One of the, uh, there's a psychologist interviewed in the the show I watched about it and it's just, this just Auburn Calloway had such an ego and felt the need to be successful. And from, from the very beginning, you know, he was, you know, he was African-American. So he kind of, he kind of was living the dream for the african-american man at that time you know he went to stanford in the 70s he was a navy pilot right um, you know he flew flew commercially and then got a job at fedex but it seemed like every place he went he j- dropped a little bit in status mm-hmm. um like he wasn't a pilot he was an engineer which is still you know a high level That's, job yeah right. but impressive he, in my opinion. he yeah he Just, he had issues with it. And he felt like the work he had a chip on his shoulder. The world was doing him wrong. Um, And again, his, his end game was if this plane crashes and it's ruled an accident because I was on board and I'm a FedEx employee, my family will get all this money. And he Mm -hmm. had prior to the accident, prior to all of this, he had sent his wife like $50,000 to his ex-wife. So I mean, no, his, his brain. His brain wasn't functioning anyway, but I don't think he ever would have gotten away with this. Um, and
2: pilots, pilots are like neurosurgeon, cardiac surgeon levels of God complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're like the cockiest, most Mm -hmm. egotistical nightmares of human beings you will ever talk to. Um, and any pilots listening, I'm sorry, but it's true. (laughs) Um, you you're probably I'm not like, yeah, you are. You are. Even <laughs> yeah. the nicest one has a little little
0: bit of ego. But there's there's gotta be. There's gotta be. So um on May 26, 1994 the crew of Flight 705 were awarded the Airline Pilots Association's Gold Medal Award for Heroism, yeah. which is the highest award a commercial pilot can receive. But unfortunately, due to the nature of their injuries, none of the three men were ever able to fly commercially again. Yeah. Um, in fact, Tucker developed a seizure disorder that required him to take medication to prevent seizures. And the only way he would be able to fly without supervision would be to not take the medication, Aww. which he couldn't do. Yeah. So he was yeah. dependent. He's, he's going to be dependent on it for the rest of his life. Um, the DC-10. Uh, sustained about $800,000 in damages. Jesus. It was repaired and it is still flown to this day. What this, Damn. Plane, this plane was released in 1985. So it is going on 36 years old and it is still,
1: still flown regularly for FedEx.
2: Look, um, FedEx. ain't wasted no money.
1: They're cleaning no, that had shit up. eight hundred thousand dollars worth of damage, and I'm almost <laughs> that age, and I don't right. think I should be in service. Like, right, <laughs> right. I mean,
0: they. I think eventually it's going to get phased out, but it is still being so. flown. Um, and so I want to kind of end this with a quote from uh David Sanders. Um, he was the last person on the plane. Um, And so this is something that he said in that episode that I thought was just really, you know, kind of ties it all together. He said, quote, standing in the door of the airplane, I had a sense of euphoria I'd never experienced before or since. It was the sense that we had been there and we came back and we won, end quote. Wow.
2: Wow. So. Damn.
0: And unfortunately I, I tried, I did find Andy Peterson on Facebook. He lives in Olive Branch. So he's very close by. I have a couple of mutual friends in common with him. Ah, I, haven't, <laughs> I have not been able to find, uh, anything on the other two gentlemen. Um, I think the last article was in our local paper back in like 2014 or whenever the 25th anniversary was, um and the pictures that I'll share from that commercial appeal article. Um, but yeah, no, Andy Peterson looks, looks like he's doing well. Um, but yeah, I wasn't able to find any more current information on the other, other crewmen and, uh, Auburn Calloway. May he rot in that jail cell until the end of days.
2: Yeah, that's fucked up. A spear gun. A yes. fucking spear a fucking, gun.
0: Yes, a fucking span. He's like, That's this is really real scary. gun. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. And one of the sources uh, that I'll link in the show notes is a transcript of the entire flight. Oh wow. Um, and it's just like you can see, like, they're they're talking about where they're from and where they right. live. And then yeah. all of a sudden Chit-chat. it's like, yeah, what the fuck are you doing? I think is what uh, David Sanders said. That's the first record you right. have of something going wrong. Is damn. It's just, but, and I lived in Memphis at that time. I think I was like in fourth grade in 94. And my mom, she worked for the FAA her entire career while we were in Memphis. And I, I asked her the other day, I'm like, do you remember this? And she, she could not remember this happening. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it was right over our heads. And we didn't, yeah. like, I don't remember right. this. It's crazy. That so Nana, I have always wanted to share this story. And uh, that is why I picked the topic of survivors. So I could,
2: yeah. That's awesome. Well, that's, that's the thing too, about like FedEx's flight crews is like the movie Castaway. Mm -hmm. They did everything exactly how a FedEx flight crew member would have done it in that Mm -hmm. circumstance. So that was an interesting, that's interesting. And I'm
0: surprised there hasn't been a movie made about this. Same. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean there's been a like two air disaster TV shows and I think you know a couple of podcasts nothing n- none of the biggie podcasts have talked about right. it I think they're more like air airplane focused topics um so I'm just it blows my mind that Again, there hasn't been a movie made about I mean, this. if
2: we can get Con Air, we should <laughs> do Now, get don't this. you badmouth Con Air, man. I would That's, never. That I is would my jam. Never, I, I love me some John Con air. And... Put down the bun air. <laughs> I can't do a Nick Cage impression. Oh, news, gosh, that is like a. You know, yeah. well, Danny Trejo. No, no, it
0: was. Why couldn't you put the bunny back in the box? You know <laughs> oh, yeah, that I was a put it. The bunny it so- back in the
2: box.
0: Steve Buscemi, like, yes, It is. Danny Trejo, yes, who who, who Trejo's tacos? Danny Trejo yes, is I my hero. Gone yet.
2: I haven't gone yes, yet. Yes, he. a pop up here in Chicago that I've been meaning to go to.
0: He saved someone's life, something crazy, a couple of months ago. I wish I knew what it was about, but I. Yeah, I a, remember seeing that. story. Yeah, I'm obsessed with Danny Trejo. He is the one celebrity i would just love to meet because and charles just seems... manson
2: hypnotized him
0: really yes it...
2: <laughs> they were in jail together i That's i knew wild. he was in jail i did
0: not know he was in jail with manson yeah so. anyway he would he the first movie i ever saw him in was bubble boy and, yeah. <laughs> and i just was like ah he's awesome i love
2: him this is a so, Danny Trejo appreciation podcast. Yes, it is.
1: Danny, if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> yeah, come on the show, please. <laughs> Tell us about your favorite cemetery.
2: Yeah, yes. exactly. I know you um, have one.
1: I'm sure but he you does. know. Two, though, going back to the story real quick, I really hope that that guy's <laughs> ex wife and kids are okay. Yeah, it's got to be tough to have your dad do something so absolutely if he wild. Did something yeah. this crazy?
2: So, I'm sorry, but there's no chance in hell that he wasn't. Abusive in some way to his. Family. Oh, I'm sure. I'm so. sure. I'm I just, sure. I, he hope, was,
1: I just hope they're okay and that they're having a nice day and.
2: Yeah. Good right. We'll yeah. Change their
1: names, maybe.
2: Yeah. Right. Exactly. God love them. Yep. All right, Hannah. You want All to right. wrap us up? All right. So, picture it. May twenty sixth, twenty thirteen. It's five a.m. just off the coast of Nigeria. And there's a tugboat called the JaceCon four, not a clever name, but it's a name. <laughs> and on that tugboat was 29 year old Harrison ok- Okine, Okin Okine, Okine. I'm sorry, Nigerians. I just work I think with me the here. First, the Okine, Okine. Sound, okine yeah. 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 Like that's that. what we're going to go with. Um, he was a cook aboard the Jace Con four. He had just got up, you know, it's 5 a.m. He's the cook. He's got to start doing his thing. And a huge wave hit the side of the Jace Con four, cracking the hull and flipping the tug over on the side. He just got up. This is not the way to wake up. <laughs> not, not at, at all. Apparently he had been in the restroom when the initial and then they took the initial blow to the boat and he went running out of the restroom and went sprinting for the emergency hatch where three of his crewmates were already preparing to seal it off. Um, even though I'm a Navy brat, I don't know much about boats. So if you know what they're talking about, good for you. I sure don't. <laughs> Before he got there, a torrential wall of rushing, freezing water, because Nigeria, if I'm not mistaken, is below the equator. So this would have been winter time for them. I don't know if it is, but they said the water was cold. So I believe them Uh, came out of nowhere, slammed into the three men and carried them off the boat. So now it's just him. He had no time to think. So Okine, trapped below the decks. Can't get out of the sealed thing that they're supposed to get out of. So there's water flooding all in this boat. You guys, this is my literal nightmare. This is why I don't do boats. Fuck boats. He gets through the water, gets to the bulkhead, into the ship's officer's cabins. So the waters continue. Where the captain was, I don't know. Probably dead. The water continued to rush in. So Akina got into the bathroom that adjoined the captain's room and the water slapped like slams him up against the wall of the tugboats bathroom water keeps hitting there like there's a storm it's it's just fucking up this tugboat somehow amazingly he didn't drown the ship's cook swimming up towards the ceiling of the cabin which had originally been the floor but now it's upside down found himself caught in pitch dark four foot bubble of breathable air Hanging onto the base of the overturned sink, the cook held his head above the water, breathing in as the boat sank further and further and finally came to rest on the ocean floor, almost a hundred feet down.
1: Oh man, yikes.
2: He was trapped.
1: Nightmare.
2: Buried alive in his watery grave, seemingly. (laughs) Harrison was stuck. Okay, so not only was this poor man first thing in the morning had just gone potty i i would hate it if he was taking a poo man
0: and he have was, that happen
2: right when he right can you imagine <laughs> he's only in his underpants oh, oh god bless his heart. in total darkness there's no dark there's no light there's no electricity on the ship he doesn't have a flashlight he doesn't have a goddamn thing it is pitch dark in a tiny bubble of air locked in an upside down ship resting on the ocean floor fuck that Mm -hmm. that is my
0: nightmare my little nightmare no
2: so and at this time he's in this bubble of air but it's not like he's sitting on anything he's swimming so he's treading water using all of his strength to keep his head above water And trying to preserve his oxygen as much as he can. Because the more he breathes out, the more carbon dioxide is going to be in the air. He's complete. So he's just in his underpants. So his body is mostly exposed to freezing cold salt water. Which is not good for you. Mm -mm. No drinkable water. No food. No light. And he has no idea if anybody's coming to get him. Because the ship is at the bottom of the ocean. Okine, the sole survivor, resigned himself to his fate and still stubbornly refused to give up. He was going to ride this out, hold out and fight for his life until the waters of the Atlantic Ocean or the excessive amounts of carbon dioxide finally killed him. He was like, I'm not going out because I have to be honest. I probably would have been like, let me just take a really big breath of water because I'm not fucking doing this. Yeah, like I cannot So, Nigerian rescue crews had received the mayday from the JASCON 4, but the storm and how fast the ship sank didn't let them get a timely rescue operation. They really kind of had, you know, that ship went down fast. So, and then with the storm... They were like, where the fuck do we even look? Even once the weather cleared that day, there was the relatively noticeable problem that the ship was upside down, a major set of hazards for anyone brave enough to attempt swimming inside the vessel. So you people going into it like rescue divers have got the issue of there's going to be things falling on them. There's going to be blockages. There's going to be possibilities of them getting stuck. It's just not great. And also, it isn't really recommended that they stay that deep for more than 20 minutes at a time. Oh, wow. So that's cool. Harrison Okine. Was in his boxers for 60 hours in those conditions.
0: 60 hours? I'm sorry, that's (laughs) even. That is going to be really loud, guys. I'm sorry.
2: 60 (laughs) hours? 60 hours. 60 fucking
0: hours. Oh my God. 60
2: hours. Was
0: his skin like sloughing off at that point? We're going to get there. (gasps) Yeah.
2: Yes. Starving, freezing, and with the salt water peeling the skin off his tongue and body, His body pruning up like a raisin. He he was holding on to this overturned sink. He kept his wits about him and refused to get, which goddamn, son, I...
1: You. I don't know my wits about me if I don't <laughs> no. have a tongue, like for no. whatever you said. Okay, <laughs> right, I'm still it stuck might, on the tongue. If like, I'm if off my
2: tongue. I'm out. I'm <sighs> done. We're done wits here. More,
1: just take them. Just <sighs> right.
2: Like I said, I'm taking a big lung full of water, and I'm just going to meet Jesus. I'm not yeah. doing this shit. realizing he needed to get out of the water and rest because remember he's he's been treading water this whole time and if you've been in a swimming pool you you do more work than you think you do because you're keeping your body weight afloat and you know you'll have you'll spend a day in the pool and you'll get out and you'll be sore as fuck this man has been in at the end he was in for 60 hours
0: jesus so
2: Realizing he needed to get out of the water and rest his body, he used the last bit of his strength to make several trips, holding his breath and swimming into the officer's cabin, feeling around in the darkness, pitch fucking darkness. Yeah, yeah. He, you can't open your eyes under salt water, and even if you could, he couldn't see shit anyway. Right felt around in the darkness trying to avoid a host of dangerous things under there and swam back carrying any kind of wooden objects he could feel around and locate. After a few trips like this, Okina was able to fashion some sort of raft. It wasn't a great raft, but it was enough to get his body out of the water, attempt to warm up, and rest his muscles, because I can only imagine how fucking sore he was. As he lay there, the only sounds he heard were his own breathing that was slowly killing him the gentle lapping of water against the sides of the cabin, and the horrific sounds of his dead crew members being eaten by fish. Oh. He was there for three days.
1: <laughs>
2: Eventually, a team of South African rescue divers were brought in to check out the wreckage and salvage what they could. Swimming through the depths in full gear with underwater flashlights, the f- divers found the bodies of 10 crew members, mm. then headed into the ship to investigate. When Harrison heard a metallic tapping coming from somewhere in the ship, Harrison, knowing he was working on the last of his oxygen, leapt from his raft, dove into the water, ripped the faucet from the sink, pulled himself back up onto his raft and slammed the faucet against the ceiling as hard as he could, trying to call to the divers before they abandoned him quietly hoping by entering this ship the divers didn't upset the delicate physics that was keeping him alive so he had managed to be in this air bubble and there is i didn't look into it because it was physics and that's not really my jam yeah your girl was a journalism major (laughs) um but it's called fink's law and look into it but apparently that's what Kind of the physics behind how he ended up with this air bubble. But if anything had jarred, that seal could break and God knows what could happen. Right. Minutes later, he saw a flashlight head down the hallway. It was the first light he had seen in three days. Mm. The diver didn't even see him. Oh. Okine tapped the diver as he swam by. And of course, the diver nearly shat himself. Finally at 730 p.m. on May 28th 62 hours after his boat flipped Harrison Okine exhausted starving and dangerously dehydrated was equipped with a rebreather and oxygen tank he used his last ounce of strength to swim out of the wreckage but he wasn't done Okine had been down there so long he had sucked so nuts and sucked so much nitrogen into his lungs that bringing him to the surface would have killed him immediately what instead he had to spend the next 60 hours in a decompression chamber harrison okine having gone through a claustrophobic person's worst nightmare was finally released to the hospital on june 1st and was only declared to go home it says earlier this week but Uh, That would have been December of 2013. So he was in the hospital for a while. His 62-hour ordeal trapped in his underwear in a bathroom 100 feet below the ocean surface is believed to be the longest any human has ever survived after being trapped underwater. And a lot of people call him the accidental Aquanaut.
1: (laughs) How old was he, by the way?
2: 29
1: his youth probably helps. Yes. Them, yes. Know?
2: Because at my 37 years
1: I'd have been like, fuck this. I mean, I was shit. just thinking if he was like a seasoned, you know, right. sailor, I mean, he was like in his 40s. Right. To even, 50s, 60s, right, you know, to even
2: be a cook on those boats. I mean, yeah. you have to be in good shape. I mean, cause yeah. it's a hard life, even if you're just the mm-hmm. cook. That is just,
0: Now, did did it say so? It said you said he had to be kept in the decompression chamber. Was it did they have to put it underwater and put him in? Yeah, they
2: have a decompression chamber that will go underwater. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's like a beige tube. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he just had to hang out in that for and they slowly like started bringing him up, right? Right. That that is is insane. Yeah. I was like, oh, my worst. I mean, I'm just thinking pitch black. and I love water. I love being in water. I love, but pitch black in Mm -hmm. ocean water. I'm hearing my crewmates get eaten. Like no ma'am. Well, I can (laughs) tell you, I I can
0: guarantee Harrison doesn't like water anymore. No, no. no. I,
2: (laughs) I tried to find out like what he's doing now, how his life has turned out. There isn't that much information. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think Nigerians are keeping really close eyes on their sailors yeah um but god damn i mean god i hope he's
1: on land i hope he is on dry yeah. land
2: every Not in interview a swimming pool that i saw Nothing about like him that. he was firmly on dry
1: soil yeah so let's keep him that way um gee whiz god
2: yeah so 10 folks you know did die unfortunately but i mean he just And they talked to the diver who found him is that the diver felt something tap him. Of course, he like freaked because he's like, (laughs) what the fuck? Yeah. And he looked up and, you know, divers had the head flashlight and he just sees him just out of the water. And it's like, what? And yeah, salt water is shit. It basically turns into sandpaper. You basically just are raw from it. I mean even his tongue, you know. Yeah. It was just oh, just the worst. Uh, and to awful. survive that, and to survive that because fuck you I wasn't mm. dying. Mhm.
1: I mean incredible.
2: Good for you, Harrison. Yes. Yeah. Fucking A man.
1: <laughs> Jeez. All right. Well, those are our survivors. <laughs> yes. Um, Blessed be their names, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um wow okay well that was deep (laughs) um next week is gonna be also probably a little depressing um i mean this is cemetery road what do you expect right we talk about dead people we're gonna talk about spontaneous memorials um which are sort of like memorials that pop up when there's a tragedy or um you know think about like say the george floyd uh, mural or or something like that um we're going to each research some of those to talk about because Mm -hmm, i think those are an interesting uh way to memorialize something or someone how -hmm. we mourn collectively
2: because mourning can feel like such a singular um Mm -hmm. as people who have gone through grief know you feel very alone in your grief um but mourning as a collective is a different kind of kind of animal that I think is interesting.
1: It really is. So that is what we have coming next week, and then we will have a—I'm just going to tease it—a surprise bonus episode coming. Yeah, with a surprise too. guest. Yes, that we are very excited about. We are. We're very excited. Um, we're not going to give you any hints because we None. don't love you. Not a so, single one. Um, <laughs> um go and find us on the social media channels Lori. where can they find us
0: we're on facebook instagram and twitter at cemetery row pod or you can send us an email to cemetery row pod at
2: gmail.com and go get your <laughs> fucking shot that's yes. right you
1: play do it <laughs> bye saying I bye have a I'll great fight. night bye, bye. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was a really like definite bye i was like shit i ain't not yeah. say nothing we're yeah we're done play- now if you,
1: if you don't if you're not vaccinated you're a playground
2: exactly play Unless- us
1: out Derek. <laughs>